0: diving into data diving di- diving d- d- data diving into data with TC Riley hello 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 again everyone and welcome into another episode of diving into data I am your host TC Riley hope everyone's doing well out there as we are now in the great month September, moving towards Q4 in the end of the year, right around the corner. Hope that everyone's staying safe at home and uh, real excited about the show that we have for you this week. The title this week is going to be Don't Always Swing at the First Pitch. So for those of you who know uh, baseball at all, you have a general idea of what that reference is to. Um, and we are going to wrap up the show today with some uh, MLB information, some other sports quick hits, but... Our main topic today is going to be all around taking a measured approach to using data and the different kind of fallacies or issues you can run into if you're not careful about how you're using and interpreting the results of an experiment or an analysis of something of that nature. Excited for a great show, so sit back, relax, grab a drink if you choose to do so. Let's dive into some data. As I mentioned, our main topic this week in our episode, Don't Always Swing at the First Pitch, is taking a measured approach to using data. And as always, have a couple of really cool articles that I use to kind of gather my information and help me prep for the show. Um, Two of these are actually from, if you've listened before, one of my favorite people, one of my data crushes, Cassie Kazarkoff, the Chief Decision Scientist at Google. Um, One is a blog post and a little article she wrote on Focus on Decisions, Not Outcomes. The other one is the problems with analyzing policy decisions in hindsight. Two great little articles from Cassie that I'm going to be referencing today. And again, if you haven't read any of her stuff, she is a must follow for anyone in the data world. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. The last article for our main story today comes from Tech Target. It's talking about machine learning and bias concerns weigh on data scientists. So let's dive into why we need those articles and what we're talking about here. Again, taking a measured approach to using data. So really, I broke this down into a number of things, another of uh, almost variables you consider that feed into this. And so as we run through this, we're first going to really look at don't run with the first outcome. That's a reference back to that title that don't always swing at the first pitch. So be careful about the first outcome or the first result of an experiment. The second topic is going to be decisions, not outcomes. Again, shout out to Cassie for uh, kind of framing that argument for me. The third is gonna be considering additional variables, considering what else is going on within your controlled experiment. The fourth is gonna be be aware of externalities, so things outside the experiment that could have a big impact. And the last one's gonna be something that if you've listened to the show before, you've heard me talk about time and time again, it's actively fight against bias. So let's dive in again with this don't run with the first outcome. So what we're talking about here is being careful to not let initial findings be your only finding in your final decision. Something that I've seen is very, very common with a lot of companies, and frankly, a lot of people with data backgrounds, um, is that whether it is based on a pre-existing bias, whether it is based on a need for an immediate result, um, frankly, whether it's sometimes just being really excited that an analysis or experiment you did has a really clear result. Don't let that single experiment. And that single result dictate major next steps. When I say major next steps, this doesn't mean, um, you know, the next step of your experiment or the the next analysis you want to run. But don't make massive business decisions and my, massive maybe financial decisions if you're looking more personally at this based on a single experiment and a single outcome. Every 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 experiment should be validated in multiple ways at minimum. Again, if, if you have not validated the results in multiple ways. Um, you're not really following the scientific method because you should be able to recreate that. Ideally, I'm going to go even a step further than just saying validate the same thing in multiple ways. And I'm going to say that you actually kind of have some concurrent experiments running that take a completely different approach to your problem, take a completely different look, um, maybe make different assumptions. You have different controls in those experiments. If you're really onto something, you're going to probably see consistency across your results. You're going to see all these results kind of come together at the end, and you're going to be able to see a clear picture of this truly is a definitive finding. You kind of are missing the bigger picture. Uh, Maybe you could say you're not checking your work. If you let that satisfaction of kind of a single successful experiment outweigh the need to follow that scientific process and that scientific method that you know you should be following. Now, again, what I, I, before we move on from this little first topic, I do not want anyone out there to take this to mean, well, if you find something in data, you should ignore it because it doesn't mean anything. That That's definitely not, not what we're saying. What we're saying here is just if this is a significant decision, if this is a significant analysis that's really going to play a major role in your company moving forward or major business decisions, I encourage you to follow that thought process. It's something we're all guilty of. I've done it many a times. You get excited. You see that result. You maybe have a little bit of cognitive bias there. You have something that you think, oh, I really think it's A that's driving this, and you run your first big experiment. Maybe you're dipping your toe into machine learning, it's AI, whatever it may be, and you see that aha, A has a really higher squared value. A is A is the you know variable of choice here. It's the biggest um, driver of this uh, formula or equation or whatever it may be. Don't let that immediate satisfaction. And again, I really think it's maybe personal kind of bias towards um, having that really good answer. Don't let that keep you from following the right steps, following the scientific process, checking um, that you've really looked at this in every way you can. Again, at very least validated it in multiple ways, the same variable, the same thing you're going for, and ideally tried to approach it completely different ways. Um, Maybe all those fail and you come back to, wow, I've tried, you know, A, three different ways and it's always A. And I've tried B, C, and D, and none of them ever seem to work. So then you've really validated something. You have something concrete. You can really throw your weight behind. So again, don't swing at that first pitch. Don't always swing at the first pitch. All right, our second little topic here. Again, kind of straight, taking this right from Cassie uh, K over at Google. Decisions, not outcomes. This article, I again, I highly recommend you go find some of her information. I go find her blog that's posted on Medium. Um, and follow that I'm an active subscriber and follower of that one but what this article does is it does a great job kind of breaking down this topic and it really is focusing on do not let outcomes define the success of your decision-making process again this is something that's very very easy for people especially if you're not very data-centric but even those of us who are it is easy to let an outcome kind of turn around and say well this was successful or not successful and that's not what you're going for with a thought experiment with a experiment around data you are not going for the outcome you're going for the decision making process you're going for the best informed decision you have to go with the most likely the best theoretical outcome the most commonly you know in a a set of uh samples that you run the one that is most common to occur you cannot look back and say well Yeah, I know it was 90% this, but hey, that 10% hit. And, you know, so we really messed this up with the data can't be trusted. No, no, no. The data isn't predicting. The data doesn't tell the future. It's not a magic eight ball that you shake up and it's going to, you know, do some great little answer. It's telling you the likelihood of different outcomes. I think she used a great example of this, and it was a coin and dice game. So, Go along with me here for a second. You have this, we're playing this coin and dice game and I've offered you the chance to win $100 in one of two ways. You have option A or you have option B. I have a coin in one hand and a six sided die in another. I say, all right, option one, you are gonna have heads. If the coin flip comes up heads, you get $100. I'm also gonna roll a die, but the die doesn't actually matter here. Your your outcome is entirely dependent on me flipping this coin at being a head. All right, that's your first option. Your second option, I'm going to roll this die and flip a coin. This time, you don't care what the coin. The coin can land heads, tails or on its side. You don't care. You get $100 if I roll a six on this die. All right. Now, anyone with any logic would say, well, there's a 50-50 chance of me winning on that coin flip. The coin being heads are forty-nine point nine 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 because that side thing I just mentioned, that kind of throws us off. But um, the other one would be only a you know 16.7% chance. It's one out of six chance. Um, for the die rolling a six. So everyone would pick the heads, right? Well, what if you go through that and you say, well, I'm going with that one, and you flip a tails, and then that die roll you don't care about comes out as a six? Does it mean you chose wrong? Does it mean that you were absolutely wrong in the way you evaluated this? No, no, of course it doesn't. You evaluated it the right way. You gave yourself the best chance. You gave yourself three times higher likely chance of winning that 100 bucks and putting in your pocket But that doesn't mean it's always going to be the result so keep that in mind as you're doing any type of data experiment Um, not that you know you get a 50 50 chance on a coin and a one six chance for rolling a die no not that but that what you're going for is the decision making process making informed smart tactical decisions about what should be done and the right approach to take you're not going for the outcome itself ideally the outcome is going to follow your decision making process and you're going to be happier more times than not however don't let outcomes no matter good bad expected unexpected change your view of the experiment whether it was set up correctly and whether you're using data correctly so i hope that little story makes sense to you and uh if anyone wants to play that game for 100 bucks with me i'll gladly give you uh i'll take option one or option two if i'm not putting anything on the line you're going to give me 100 bucks so alrighty, let's move on to our third little category here which is additional variables. Again, taking a measured approach to data, our third little category here is additional variables. This is something that personally I've seen a lot with clients um, and something that I see far too often is people are looking at a, I'm going to call it a massive project. You could say a loaded equation, a very intricate analysis. You could talk about this however you want. But we're talking about this, something very, very large that has lots of components, lots of moving you know, parts to it, lots of gears, and they're analyzing it and they're kind of shrinking it down to a single dimension. And what I mean by that is they're only looking at one of the major impacts to this system. They're only looking at one of the things that is going to determine the outcome. And they get so hyper-focused on that one thing that they maybe get real, real specific in exactly how to control that one thing. But they're ignoring the other things going on again within your controlled experiment. We're gonna to get to externalities, we're gonna to get to things outside that can't be controlled here in a minute. What we're talking about is within the experiment. So you're always in other words, what you're saying again, let's go back to our A, B, C, D, E thing. Um, you have these A, B, C, D, E, these five variables that are gonna, you know, make up your formula, make up your equation, whatever you want to call it. And all you're focused on is A. You're ignoring B, C, D, and E. Now, maybe A is the most important. We're not saying A is, you know, uh, less significant or more significant than the others. But what we're saying is that you're not looking at B, B, C, D, and E. And first off, it's okay if that's all you're testing for in a particular experiment. If something is only going to look at A, that's okay. It's a piece of the puzzle. But what I want you to remember is that it can be a piece of the puzzle without being the whole puzzle. So don't get, again, so hyper-focused on this one thing that you're ignoring the other things. When I specifically see this, I think the most common one I see this is when we're talking to clients, obviously given the kind of marketing nature and web analytics nature of what we do here at MarketScale, or at least my department kind of focuses on a lot. What people are always looking for is what is the golden ticket, what is the magic pill for site traffic and getting the best visitors and things like that. And what people tend to do for whatever reason, when you're looking at that Google Analytics data, they seem to focus on one specific dimension I've noticed over and over and over, and that is channel, or maybe you'll call it source medium, where people are coming from. So what they'll do is that they're going to break down the success of things and they're going to, if something was very successful, the first place they're going to go to understand why is successful is, well, where did people come from from this? Alternatively, something wasn't so successful. Well, let's go look at the breakdown of our channels and figure out where we're not getting traffic from because that's our issue. Now with web traffic, yeah, channel slash source medium, whatever you want to call it, is very important. That is something it's you know a critical kind of understanding of how people are getting to your content and how they're engaging with your website. But it ignores so many other things that are within our experiment: times, days, devices, browsers, landing pages, and that's not even to mention things like you know user intent, um, user specific demographic information, externalities. All these other things could be playing a piece. So. What I often tell tra- clients whenever we're talking about this is, yes, you know, source channel is a important piece of the puzzle, but again, it's not the whole puzzle. So when you're doing these experiments, don't let yourself get too focused on that singular puzzle piece and miss the bigger picture. We are gonna take a quick break here on diving into data, and we're gonna dive in with externalities and bias, our last two components of our main topic today, taking a measured approach to using data. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Diving Into Data. All right, so we're halfway through our Taking a Measured Approach to Using Data, our main topic for our episode this week, which is don't always swing at the first pitch. We've talked a little bit about the first outcome, um, experiment bias, however you want to say, that having that very first initial outcome kind of drive the, assume that it's the only important piece of the puzzle. Um, We've talked about decisions, not outcomes. Again, how whenever you're doing an, an analysis, whenever you're using data, you're trying to help inform the best decision-making process. You cannot judge the success of an analysis or the um, trustworthiness of data, maybe you could say it another way, based on the outcome. Looking back, it just doesn't work that way. You, you're, I promise you're gonna fail every time if you take that approach. And we also touched on additional variables in the experiment. Um, use the example of where website traffic is coming from and looking too much at one specific thing like the channel they're coming from while ignoring all the other critical components. But there are two other big pieces that um, I want to touch on as we talk about, um, again, being careful to take a measured approach to using data and kind of doing it the right way. And those are externalities and biases. First, let's dive at externalities. So even if you account for every controlled variable in your experiment, you've done everything possible to put everything in a box and you know make sure you have every little piece of that box accounted for, it's still not the whole picture in real life. Again, real life does not work in vacuums. There's not an ability to remove all additional factors from something whenever you're making any true business informed decision. Now, again, if you're doing this in an MBA course or an economics course or something, sure, absolutely go for it. But that's not the real world. There are externalities galore that influence any real life business application of data and data analysis. So first off, for those of you who aren't familiar, an externality, um, there's kind of two, two ways to define this. The economics, uh, you know, background in me, the externality definition from an econ point of view is a third-party benefit or cost that didn't choose to incur that cost or benefit. However, there's also one in kind of a business side um, that people also use this term, which is what we're going to talk a little bit more about today, and that is influences to real-world application beyond traditional or direct variables. So that is again when you're actually applying something in the real world. It's these other things that aren't even really related to your experiment, but that are still influencing the experiment. Again, you're not performing this in a vacuum and you have to understand and recognize and appreciate that. So the best way I can kind of give an example around this is the global situation with COVID on recent business KPIs. Um, And some of these things are going to seem very obvious. But again, I think they need to be stated very clearly because it is an important piece of this puzzle that we're building and uh, frankly, many business leaders understand and have accounted for the externalities of the market, the uh, the business kind of uh, situation of the world recently. Um, frankly, sometimes they even go, you know, actually make adjustments and expectations and forecasting and projections for this continuing kind of unknown variable that we have. So many business leaders are smart enough to r- realize this, look past this and not just trust historical data and assume that's gonna apply exactly. However, there are some leaders out there that have frankly ignored the impact of this on KPIs. Um, One of the ones we've specifically seen, um, uh, we occasionally have some clients, we use a reverse IP lookup tool here at market scale. Pretty much it just tells you what visitors are hitting your website and people are looking at the number of leads captured through that tool recently and coming back and saying, Hey, there are issues here. Our numbers are way down. Um, You know, everything else on the site looks good. This and that look good. Maybe, you know, our sales are up or down this amount. Um, But just specifically, my issue right here is that we aren't getting as many leads to this tool, which means that, you know, this content isn't doing its job. My team isn't doing their job. Market scale isn't doing their job. And the most basic externality there is there are a lot of people that have been. Luckily, we're getting back to it. um, But there have been a lot of people that have been working from home. A lot of people that, yes, while a lot of companies have VPNs and items like that, not every company does. If you're using some type of business-based software that's reverse IP lookup that only knows business IP addresses, no, it's not going to get me on my home address, even if I'm actually doing work on my home IP address. So that might be a very, very specific granular example. But again, it's a critical, critical component to understanding that there are other things going around in the world that no matter how I design an experiment looking at lead generation for a business, I'm almost never going to come to, you know, think to include a variable of well, what percent of the workforce is working from home right now? Or is there a global pandemic that's been going on? That's just not something you're going to consider, but it's absolutely something that's going to impact your results. And again, if we did this the right way, we're not looking at those outcomes. We're not looking at those. We're looking at our decision-making process, as we just talked about. However, it's just, this doesn't, this really bleeds over, uh, maybe as much in business, more in like public policy. When you get into the kind of the political government sphere, um, And rather than me trying to explain it, I'm just going to tell you guys, please go check out Cassie's article um, on her Medium blog that talks about why in public policy this is a huge issue. And while when you look back at certain things and you try to uh, qualify the appropriateness or the value of a certain public policy, that it's a huge issue that you're missing so many components that you're taking a very reactive outcome um, and you're almost trying to fit a model to the result, you're not letting the model kind of predict the results by itself. So go check that out. But again, at the end of the day, make sure you understand anything you're doing in real life in the business world is not in a vacuum. It is not in a closed sealed box. There are many, many outside factors and things that you might not even consider an actual variable to your experiment or something that would truly quote unquote impact your experiment or change the projected value that will impact the outcome. And again, you're not looking at the outcome. You're smarter than that. You're looking at the decision-making process that goes into that. Alrighty, our last little topic here within this section, bias. So again, if you've listened to the show before, you've probably heard me say the word bias just about as much as anything. Um, it's, It's something we've covered multiple times, but frankly, I think it deserves to be restated. I'm gonna keep talking about it because I think it's such a wrench in the data game that so many people overlook. Do not let your expectations or predictions influence the validity of an experiment. That is the greatest cardinal sin, in my opinion, you can make in data. Far too often we see things where, well, that's not the data I expected, so either the data's wrong, the experiment's wrong, something's wrong, something, there's some other issue, or we just didn't consider too many things. You immediately go into a place of trying to explain away what the data is saying. Now, this does not mean that the data is always right, the data is always accurate, and there aren't issues with it. Please don't take it to mean that. However, you have to take a scientific approach to this. Don't let your personal expectations, however strongly you feel about those, influence the validity of the data itself. So there's a kind of a simple way, again, to get around this that we've talked in the past. It's setting a verifiable hypothesis. Ideally, you also set a verifiable uh, null hypothesis, um, those of you who don't know a null hypothesis, it's pretty much a general statement um, that there's no actual correlation, there's no actual relationship between two measured variables or two phenomena. Um, so it's pretty much what you'd say, uh, it's the opposite of your hypothesis. I think A causes B, or I don't think A and B have anything to do with each other. Think of it that way. If the hypothesis isn't proven, it does not mean that the data is wrong or the data is inconclusive. Take that result with the same seriousness and weight that you would if your prediction was true. Again, this doesn't mean that there aren't all these other factors that we just listed that can influence your experiment. There could absolutely be other things wrong. However, I'm willing to bet in many businesses, the single biggest issue or roadblock you run into at the end of a large experiment or analysis is confronting those biases and people immediately putting too much or too little weight on a certain analysis or experiment based on their preconceived bias, their preconceived notion of what should quote unquote happen. So uh, another way to look at this in real life, there's this, uh, again, I mentioned there's a really good article from TechTarget that talks about this, is in AI and ML, we often actually run a huge risk of subconscious bias based on the models and the way that they're built. And you might think, well, wouldn't artificial intelligence, machine learning, wouldn't the machines not have bias? Isn't that the whole point of using machines? Well, yes, in a way. If a a machine is not going to necessarily be biased towards one result or another, it's going to let the numbers speak for themselves. However, how does that machine work? Well, it's fed by data that is gathered, usually cleaned and processed by humans, sometimes humans with bias. And it runs algorithms. It runs formulas. AI is great as it is, as we talked about in an episode a couple months ago. It's not generating its own um, true intelligence at this point and building itself um, just from the ground up. So when those algorithms were programmed, when this model was built, when the machine learning model was trained, for instance, that was all done by humans. Again, humans who could have bias. So it does a really good job of kind of diving into all the different aspects of how AI and ML were once kind of viewed as this bias-free zone, for lack of a better term, this safe space that if you were able to successfully do this, you could remove the human bias components. And what we're realizing is in practice and actuality, no human bias still spills over because no matter how far back you go at some point in the building blocks of that process of that model of that technology, humans influenced it. And any times that humans touched it realistically, there's bias because, Hey, we're human. We're not perfect. And that's okay. But, um, again, to wrap up, this topic is our main one today. Again, taking a measured approach to using data. There's a lot of things to consider. Um, don't always swing at the first pitch. That's my one of my biggest ones for you there. Take every result with a grain of salt. Actively look for reasons you could have been wrong. Take the other approach. Try to you know put on the other hat, for lack of a better term, and look at it that way. I think more times than not, you're going to come up with with some critiques or some ways to improve your experiment or your thought process or your analysis that you wouldn't have considered if you kind of sit in your own lane the whole time. Um, consider externalities, consider additional variable variables, and please, please, please do whatever you can to avoid bias. It might be impossible to avoid as we just talked about. However, if you set up that verifiable hypothesis, if you follow the scientific process, if you follow the right steps to do it, you can severely limit it or at the very least, you can acknowledge the bias and how it may have impacted the experiment. One more quick break here in diving into data, and then we're gonna come back and wrap up with some sports quick hits. Be right back. Alrighty, to wrap up this episode of Diving Into Data, as any of you who have listened before know, one of my favorite things to talk about here is sports, sports, sports. So We're going to wrap up with some sports quick hits. Really, all this is is looking at some data trends, some data-related items that have caught my eye over the last month or two, now that sports is really back and playing again. And man, what an exciting time it is to be a sports fan. Over this next month or two, we are going to see Stanley Cup, NBA Finals, MLB postseason chase and MLB playoffs, football getting started more golf majors and things that have been moved back. I was even watching the Kentucky Derby this weekend in September, which is really weird, but it's a great, great, great time to be a sports fan for all that lull we had in those four or five months where we had nothing but Korean baseball and professional cornhole to watch. Man, is it good to have sports back. All right. That doesn't relate. I just had to get that off my chest. Cause man, if you can't tell, I am excited that sports are back. So let's look at three little uh, three sports and kind of some data centric things. First, the NBA, reading this cool 538 article, again, Adam Silver, for those of you who aren't uh, Nate Silver, not Adam Silver, he's not uh, the commissioner of the MLB, he runs 538, a great data sports um, now politics also site. So what they're looking at is monster games in the NBA playoffs aren't automatically translating to wins. You're talking about some unique stuff going on in the NBA bubble, um, the end of the season, now in the playoffs in the bubble, that don't really line up with historical expectations. So, what they were talking about is these monster games. They use this player rating, which, as the name kind of suggests, it tries to accumulate everything a player does into a single number. And they had this monster game threshold of 30+. plus. That's not really important here. What we're actually talking about is big scoring and stat breakouts and how they're not really tied to wins. So... The frequency of these big games is up a lot in this playoffs, this small sample size we have in the bubble compared to a long time, and that also really ties in with the overall scoring being way, way up. And even though historically, whenever a player had this monster game, quote unquote, they were winning at about a seven hundred fifty or .75 clip, so th- winning three out of four, that record's down to about .6, so winning three out of five. And they're trying to understand the article breaks down a number of different possibilities there. We're not going to get into all those today. Go check it out if you're interested. But it's really interesting to see that this very kind of high level stat that there are over times a lot of correlation with this thing occurring in a lot of wins is completely different in the bubble. Um, and, again, we're talking about that. We're talking about high scoring. I think just as a sports fan, there's a number of things to consider. One, it's a controlled bubble environment. You don't have fans, so scorings naturally might be up for visiting teams. You don't have um, those, you know, the jeers coming in and some of the other externalities. Hey, hey throwback to the last segment. Um, come into play. Two, something I've heard a ton of different really good shooters say is the background behind the rim. In a normal arena, you're looking at, you know, 50, hundred rows of seats behind a basket. And those clear backboards, it's kind of hard to get your depth perception, right? You're looking for this, that bright orange rim and nothing else here. There's either just a black wall or maybe a couple of those zoom screens, but it's right behind there. It's a little bit more, you know, you're playing in your local gym back in the high school days, whatever it is, what you'd experience. So that's another thing. Um, and then again, personally, not something I've seen a ridiculous amount about, but something I personally am a, a, a fan of the theory I think defense really suffered on this uh, break that we had. Um, I think a lot of guys were in the gym getting up their shots. A lot of teams were allowing, you know, at different times people to come in for one-on-one, you know, individual sessions to work on their shooting and things like that. I don't think they were allowing a lot of people to come in and practice team defense. So I think really what we're seeing more than anything that could explain a lot of this is people got lazy and rusty on defense. We're finally now that we're into the um, semifinals of each conference, starting to see a little bit more defense being played, but, I think defense suffered because everyone was worried about getting up their shots. They weren't worried about getting in a nice defensive stance and doing defensive drills during the quarantine. Just my thought. All right, enough NBA. Let's move on to the MLB. MLB rolled out something really cool recently. It's called the Hawkeye system, which the Hawkeye optical tracking and vision processing technology. What Hawkeye is, is a continuous data stream of everything happening down on the field, down to a 10th of an inch. At all times, pretty much there's, I think there's like 12 to 20 cameras, really high speed cameras set up all around the field. And this system is looking at every person, every player of every position at every second and seeing how they do things like react as soon as the ball is hit, the position they're exactly in. Are they, you know, down to, was their weight on the balls, the feet, or their heels, or their feet when the ball was hit and they're standing in the outfield? It's looking at all of these things and creating this massive data ecosystem that they're going to be able to start making advancements on. There's still not a ton of actual information that I've seen, actual analysis coming out of this, since this is, again, it's been in trials for a couple of years, but I think it just rolled out in the last couple of months to all MLB stadiums. But player pose and motion tech are not really something they have a ton of history on. Um, it's really, when we're looking at this high level, this high capture, um, it's only really been related to pitchers, pitches, spin rates, things like that. Um, so I'm really, really curious to see from a very data-centric sport already that baseball is, what this kind of information, this technology, and this new data might open up in the future. Some exciting things coming for MLB as it relates to data. Our last little sports quick hit, the NFL. This comes from quickly from a USA Today article. And this actually, I think this is a fun story because as much as I sit here and preach to you to trust your data and do things on the data, this is an article kind of showing that, you know what, Data is good, but sometimes you need to trust the tape and not always the numbers. And what we're talking about is a new ESPN kind of algorithm that came out that was looking at run stop win rate and run block win rate. Um, Pretty much it's a defensive player on a running player when someone's doing running blocking towards them, which would be runs or play actions. Um, The win rate they have on those and it's kind of a weird um, it's one of those high level stats that, as we've kind of, you know, ha- cut all the low hanging fruit off of the sports analytics trees, it's what people are going into. But the statement that really caught my eye and literally made me laugh out loud when I read it is that, according to these two new stats that ESPN seemed really proud of, Aaron Donald is a replacement level defender. So, for those of you who don't follow the NFL at all, um, Aaron Donald um, kind of looks halfway between like Hercules and. Um, you know, the, tit- the Titan guy that held the world up on his back. The dude is an absolute monster and a beast. Um, first off, I'm pretty sure he could, you know, bench press a dump truck if he wanted to. But he's just an incredible defender. Um, and so and frankly, he's incredible to a level that even I, the data person, won't even really hear that there are these stats that may say that he is a replacement level player at this level. There's just I'm sorry, but that's just that. This is my bias coming in, and you could argue with me that, TC, you're doing exactly what you told us not to do. Yeah, I'm sorry, but this is where you let your bias kind of speak up. Um, and it was actually interesting because uh, Pro Football Focus, a couple other really highly analytical ones, came out with all their different running stats or run block shedding stats, and they all shot down this new algorithm and pretty much said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, their coach, Wade Phillips, former Cowboys coach, their defensive coordinator over LA, um, actually tweeted out an LOL And said that, you know, hey, maybe he has a new job as ESPN's new analytics guy because clearly they need one. Um, So, again, the purposely wrapping up on kind of a light note here that as much as I talk about all these data centric things and while you should appreciate a lot of things, but always, you know, take everything cautiously, um, but at the end of the day, you have to trust the data. Don't let your bias ruin it. At times, there are certain things that should be enough of an outlier, enough of a red flag to make me say, I really need to go back to my model because there's really, really, really think there's something wrong. And again, the fact that it's backed up by all these other models that say, no ESPN, your new model is ridiculous. Aaron Donald's an incredible defender and run defender um, kind of support that theory. So look what else is out there. Look at that other research, look at those other pieces of information you could gather as you're making your decisions. Um, and I'll wrap up this sports uh, uh, segment here, this quick hits um, by just saying, Football is back, and I am so excited. I've been watching colleges that I've never heard of play on Saturday just because it's football. This week, and I get back my longhorns, the NFL kicks off here in about 48 hours. Ooh, it's a good time to be a sports fan and particularly a football fan. All right, you guys, that was our episode of Diving into Data. Again, our title today was Don't Always Swing at the First Pitch. Um, we talked about taking a measured approach to using data Make sure you don't run too far with those first outcomes. Validate in a number of different ways. Work towards decisions, not outcomes. Again, because an outcome is so dependent on so many things, um, don't necessarily judge the success or failure of an event or an analysis based on that. Consider your additional variables. What else is within your closed box that you can control that you might not be paying attention to? Be aware of externalities. Again, those things outside the box. You're not actually doing anything in the real world business. Um, kind of context or a business case that is in a vacuum and doesn't have these external um, variables or external uh, inputs in some way impacting the result Um, and also always always important actively fight against bias so that was our taking measured approach to using data and wrapped up with some sports quick hits thank you guys very very much for joining us here on another episode of diving into data i hope you enjoyed it I am off to watch the Dallas Stars and their quest for a Stanley Cup. Go Stars. And later this week, as I mentioned, football, football, football. Hope everyone has a terrific week, and we will see you back here next week on Diving Into Data. See ya.